the Boston Book Festival, we believe in the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. You're about to hear a discussion about the lives of two amazing Supreme Court justices, Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Authors Will Haygood, Shana Konishnik, and Erin Carmone are hosted by WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Hello, everybody. Uh, I first want to welcome everyone. My name is Steve Orstalio, and I'm a member of the Boston Book Festival Board of Directors. Please join me in welcoming our moderator for the Supremes, the host of Here and Now on WBUR, Anthony Brooks. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you all uh, for coming out. It's, you know, I was just, it's so impressive what the Boston Book Festival does, and WBUR is just so thrilled to be a part of it. I mean, I think what... One of the values that drives us as journalists is thinking about the health of civic society. When I see a crowd like this coming out to listen to three really smart people talking about the Supreme Court, I just think this is such a good sign for when it comes to the health of civic society. So thank you guys and thank you all for coming out. So let me do a little bit of an introduction. I'm going to introduce um, these three authors and then uh, talk to them a bit. And uh, then the last 10 or 15 minutes or so of the hour, I'm going to give over to you uh, to, to uh, ask questions. So um, think about those and, and uh, be looking forward to that. So Will Haygood, uh, an author of several books, he's best known perhaps for the New York Times bestseller, The Butler, A Witness to History, which was made into a movie, uh, a movie starring Forrest Whitaker. Um, he also had a long distinguished career as a, as a reporter with the Boston Globe and the Washington Post. His new book is Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court Nomination That Changed America. And uh, as you probably all know, it tells the story of the dramatic events surrounding the appointment of Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American uh, Supreme Court Justice. So welcome, Will Haygood. It's really good to have you. Thank you. Yeah. Also with us, um, Irin Carmone and Shana uh, Konizhnik. And I was practicing uh, for the last 15 <laughs> minutes those two names, and I got them right. Okay, right. good. Yeah. And uh, so the introduction for them goes like this. So while a law student at NYU, Shauna created the notorious RBG Tumblr, uh, a meme-filled forum for fans of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, which helped to make the Supreme Court justice an internet sensation. I mean, who knew? Uh, my understanding is that she doesn't even use the internet, but there she, or barely. Anyway, we'll talk about that. Okay. <laughs> Um, uh, and uh, Irin Carmone is a national reporter for MSNBC covering women, politics, and culture together. They are co-authors of Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Welcome to you guys. Thank you. Um, yeah. So these two books uh, couldn't be more different in style and approach, but they're both about trailblazing Americans and uh, who, who pushed for justice, equal rights for all citizens, and ended up on the Supreme Court. Uh, as a crusading lawyer for the NAACP, Thurgood Marshall advanced the rights of African Americans. Ruth Bader Ginsburg co-founded the Women's Rights Project uh, at the ACLU and is often described as the Thurgood Marshall of the women's rights movement. So there's already a really interesting sort of intersection here, and, and, and we'll be talking about that. So, Will Haygood, let me, let me start with you. Um, first of all, your book, it's been beside my bed for the last uh, uh, several days. It's just riveting. It's just, it's... It's, it's riveting. And, um, Say that a little louder. Riveting. <laughs> and he'll be signing his riveting book after this, too. Um, <clears throat> but 
it does such a great service because uh, it tells such an important story about our history, and yet it's a story that I don't want to say it's forgotten, but it hasn't sort of been up there among the sort of great stories of the civil rights era. Why not? Uh, well, I think uh, that um, writers who've been who've written books about Thurgood Marshall would think of him in his story uh, on the Supreme Court because it was so historic. He was the first black man uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. So I think writers going toward Thor Thurgood Marshall would feel that they have to tell that story. Yeah. And uh, my thinking was, uh, I'm intrigued with Thurgood Marshall when I started thinking about him. And yet I wanted to go in through a side door or an attic door to tell his story. And um, his hearings uh, lasted five days, stretched across 14 days. So there were stop and starts. And they were also, uh, his nomination also set in limbo for 31 days. Now before him, every Supreme Court nominee who had been a white male their hearings lasted four hours or less. Hmm. So it was just like a rubber stamp deal. Like, hey, thanks for showing up. <laughs> Look forward to seeing you on the Supreme Court. But with Thurgood Marshall, it was no, 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 stop. Right. We, we, we don't like you. And, uh, and by we, the, the members of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee who had power, they were James Eastland of Mississippi, Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, John McClellan of Arkansas and Sam Irvin of North Carolina. These were the very men whose states Thurgood Marshall had upended with his Supreme Court victories. Right, uh, so this is a core of segregationists that are pretty much holding on to those values. Yeah, I mean, for instance, just real quick, you can imagine, you know, and we think today of witnesses, you know, who are going to come forth for, you know, your justice, you know, and then talk about something that happened to some woman in 1957 someplace. And so you can imagine if one elderly sharecropper had been allowed in room 2228 in the U.S. Senate in the summer of 1967 to point at Thurgood Marshall and say, that man gave me the right to vote. Then hmm. you can imagine how sentiment would have flowed. But Eastland of Mississippi said there will be no witnesses for Mr. Marshall. Zero. And so, yeah. you know, that story, I think, uh, just got uh, lost. Uh, it just did. Well, uh, thank God you, you, you found it and, and, and have told it in a remarkable way. So at the start of the book, there's a wonderful picture of Marshall and President Johnson, and you make the point that they're both bigger-than-life characters and sort of found a, a, almost a sense of compatibility. And in fact, there's a quote in the book uh, where LBJ says, uh, Thurgood, I'm, no I'm nominating you because you're a lot like me, bigger than life, and we come from the same kind of people. What did he mean exactly by that? Neither man was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, they knew poverty, um, and um, Lyndon Johnson from Texas, uh, listen to this. So uh, Smith v. Allwright was a case that Thurgood Marshall took to the Supreme Court in 1944, 
Smith v. Allwright grew out of a case in Houston, Texas, where blacks were not allowed to vote in the Democratic primary. And the blacks of Houston called this legendary Baltimore NAACP lawyer Thurgood Marshall and told him that he was needed down there. Marshall went down there and filed a lawsuit and, and it ended up at the Supreme Court and he won. And so now blacks could vote in the previously all-white Democratic primary. A young Senate candidate starts to take advantage of those numbers. That Senate candidate, with the help of black voters, rises up and becomes the majority leader of the Senate and then the vice president, and as we know, then the president. You can argue successfully, no Thurgood Marshall, no Lyndon B. Johnson. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I think um, uh, Johnson was hell-bent on integrating the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and um, it's very fascinating to me that John Wilkes Booth, Baltimore, the assassin of President Lincoln, Thurgood Marshall, born in the city of Baltimore, four decades on since uh, uh, the assassination, when President Johnson nominated Thurgood Marshall, he said, I'm going to finish what Abraham Lincoln started. And so that circle, to me, is just astonishing. Hmm. So... Um I want to get to this uh, core of segregationist Southern senators on the Senate Judiciary Committee that you mentioned. So John McClellan, Sam Irvin, Strom Thurmond, and the chairman, James Eastland. Um, they, they certainly weren't opposing, I mean, they weren't saying this out loud, uh, opposing um, uh, Thurgood Marshall on segregationist principles, but this was a time of turmoil in America. Um, the, civil, the civil rights movement was taking off and, and there had been riots. So, so how did they link the sort of turmoil and the, and the fear of instability in America with their opposition to Thurgood Marshall? Well, they, uh, they tried to link him as soft on crime and, you know, the racial uprisings on the street that could be linked to uh, uh, a lack of rights for black people, uh, and and they tried to uh, uh, they tried to question Mar Marshall's knowledge of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Marshall's attitude uh, was that the U.S. Constitution is a living document mm. that it needs to adapt to the times. Uh, and uh, Sam Irvin. Uh, one of Marshall's, Marshall's questioners, later famous for, for the Watergate hearings, but in 1967, uh, Sam Irvin, um, Harvard Law School graduate, and he was considered the foremost U.S. constitutional scholar in the U.S. Senate, uh, a very learned man, and uh, he was a bibliophile. He had 30,000 plus books. His wife would see him coming through the door 
after a trip, and she would say, oh, Sam, you got more books. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> God, dog, you got more books. You know, he had books on the top of his head, books <laughs> under his arms. You know, the dude just loved books. And there's, there's, you know, he had all these law books from England, Spain, the U.S., every state in the country. And there's a line in my book, and it says... <clears throat> Nowhere in any of those books could Sam Irvin find equality for the black man. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And, 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 and so he, he thought that Thurgood Marshall's titanic victory, the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education decision, he thought it was unconstitutional. Hmm. You know, and so this was really one of the first sort of public debates about originalism in the Constitution, right? Yes, 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 and very interesting too. It also was the first first public debate about Brown v. Board of Education. Um, You know, and it came years later in 1967, but it finally gave these powerful Southern senators a chance to vent their rage at that decision. Uh, I'm going to move on to um, Erin and Shauna in just one moment. I just want to ask you one more question because you make wonderful use of the transcripts from these hearings. And I wonder if you could just give us an example of how Marshall was able to successfully uh, parry with these committee members because he was masterful at it. Yes, he was. I mean, they were really trying to to entrap him, it seemed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, he was. At one point, uh, Strom Thurmond... Southern, Southern segregationists. Uh, I mean, this is interesting. Thurgood Marshall's uh, first wife was African-American, and she became ill and died, and he married a, uh, a Filipino lady, uh, interracial marriage in 1967. And uh, uh, Strom Thurmond brought up the Loving v. Virginia case, which was about a black lady and a white man in Virginia who had been arrested because they were married in the state of Virginia, sleeping in the same bedroom as husband and wives are wont to do. Uh, And so uh, Thurman asked Marshall about that, knowing that that would bring attention to his his wife, Marshall's wife, in the specter of interracial marriage. Meanwhile, Strom Thurmond, as we all now know, had fathered a black child uh, uh, due to statutory rape of his of his teenage maid. And and so you know, if that had gotten out, or or maybe if there had been a shrewd Thurman staff member, might want to whisper it in his ear, Senator. Not a good place to go. I don't think you want to go there. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you know, and, and there was a point when Strom Thurman asked Marshall if he could recite the names of the people who signed the 1853 Slave Code Act. And so everybody just stared at Marshall like, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Maybe Thurman's going to get him here and prove that he's not brilliant. 
And so Marshall said, um, Senator, I haven't a clue. And it was so rich. And then Senator Ted Kennedy said, uh, Senator Thurman, can you name those men? And <laughs> Senator Thurman said, uh, you're out of order. Uh, how dare you ask me such a question like that? Uh, wait a minute, who, who told you to speak up? Uh, you're out of order there, Senator Kennedy. How dare you do that? Let's move the hearings on now. <laughs> this uh, book, by the way, has been optioned for a TV series, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment uh, because I want to move on to uh, but my point being you can see why. Um, and I hope you have a major role in this series. <laughs> uh, let me move on to, to Irin and Shana. Um, and I want to start by asking you, Shana, because as we mentioned, this book started as a, as a Tumblr. Um, so how did Notorious RBG come about? Sure. Um, well, so it actually happened about 50 years, almost 50 years after the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. Um, in 2013, there was a case called Shelby County v. Holder. Um, and there were a number of cases that came out that week which had somewhat disappointing decisions. Um, and that day in particular, uh, Justice Ginsburg announced a dissent from the bench. And, um, you know, a lot of my friends, I was uh, going into my second year of law school at the time, and everyone was talking about all the decisions because that's what law students do. And in particular, uh, Justice Ginsburg's dissents in a number of those cases, there was the Voting Rights Act case, Shelby County, but there was also cases on affirmative action, cases on workplace discrimination, and she wrote these amazing forceful dissents in every one of those cases that week. And sort of in this moment where a lot of us law students were not so happy with where the court seemed to be going, Justice Ginsburg was this light giving us, you know, speaking truth to power, really. And a friend of mine actually posted on Facebook, wow, Justice Ginsburg, she can sure write, hashtag, Notorious RBG. <laughs> and it just clicked in my mind. I couldn't believe, and I looked on the internet and it didn't exist. And I thought to myself, how could this be? And there wasn't a website that was even dedicated to her, really. And I decided to start that Tumblr. Um, and the first entry of the Tumblr is a quote from her descent in Shelby County, which is uh, throwing out preclearance, which is a provision of the Voting Rights Act that was struck down by that case. Throwing out preclearance uh, because it is working to stop racial discrimination is like throwing out your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. So that's pretty much what started it. It's amazing. Um, Did you have any idea that it was going to sort of take off and kind of be this sensation? Not or? at all. Um, it immediately took off. Uh, I saw people posting it I, I was an intern at the time. I was actually working at an organization in San Francisco uh, that does post-conviction death penalty uh, litigation. And a friend of mine, uh, at, a co-intern of mine, was telling me that her friend had posted it 
either the same day or the next day, and we had no relation. So I knew it was already spreading amongst law students, but I had no idea that I would be sitting here uh, just over two years later. That's a fantastic story, and, and a wonderful book, too. Um, and, and I want you guys to sort of dis- d- describe it, but first let me bring Erin um, into this conversation, because if I understand it right, an editor from HarperCollins approached you about turning it into this book, and that uh, brought you to Erin. So what attracted you to this project? Well, so uh, in my daily life, uh, I cover reproductive rights, women's rights, these pitched battles over women's bodies that are happening, particularly in the Deep South right now. Um, And I think the movement that began, the cultural movement, the celebration of Justice Ginsburg that began uh, with Shauna's Tumblr, with other folks who around the same time were celebrating her, I think was a kind of fun, light manifestation of something really important and really substantive, which is to say that Justice Ginsburg has devoted her entire life to gender equality and to the idea that people should be able to pursue their destinies without regards to the color of their skin, to their gender, and then eventually their sexuality. And the reason I think that that Shauna's Tumblr struck a chord, the reason that I think people were using kind of pop culture mashups, by this point we've seen Ruth Bader Ginsburg nail art, obviously t-shirts, clay. Uh, I got a chance to show Justice Ginsburg people tattooing her face onto their bodies, which she was deeply horrified by. Um, That's the point where you remember that she's also a Jewish grandmother. Like, she was like, no, no, that's terrible. Is that the weirdest tribute to come out of this? Is it the weirdest? We saw, some, we saw this really weird painting of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Obama in a kind of like romance novel thing on a unicorn with a rainbow. I think he's shirtless and he's like holding her. It's very sexual. We don't like that one. We did not put that one in the book. Too much. We did not put that one in the book. Um, but but I, think, I think the reason people were drawn to Justice Ginsburg was the force of her intellect in fighting for civil rights mm. writ large and in particular... Uh, the voice of a woman who, uh, it, at, at, at the time, she, there were other women on the court, but many of her first dissents had come out when she was unwillingly the only woman on the court. Mm. And this is someone who, you know, you mentioned that Justice Ginsburg had, had, was often called uh, the Thurgood Marshall of the women's movement. The funny thing is that Bill Clinton did not initially want to nominate her because he said the women are against her. There was like something lost in translation. They thought she was too conservative. Hmm. Uh, And then there was a speech that he came across that compared her to Thurgood Marshall, and Bill Clinton thought, well, here's somebody who, uh, even though they have this kind of quiet, she has this quiet style, uh, unlike Thurgood Marshall, not a larger-than-life character, speaks very slowly, very small, very quiet, very deliberative, masking this fierce fighter. Somebody who has really stood up for the rights of others and someone who has been playing a long game. Um, And so at a point where the court is lurching to the right, what Shauna described, uh, somebody who's actually devoted their life to this cause. And only now are we at a cultural moment where we can see it. Yeah. 
I'm still so struck by, um, I mean, how this became, why this became such a popular phenomenon on Tumblr. And it sort of gets back to this original idea that I sort of threw out there off, off the cuff at the beginning, that it seems to speak, uh, I don't know, about some essential healthy thing that's going on out there. That is that folks really want to engage with this stuff at a, at a serious level, even if it initially sounds like a sort of not very serious way to engage. It, it is serious, right? You know what I'm talking about? Absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the things that both, that we really try to achieve with our book was this intersection between fun and substance. Yeah. And we wanted to bring, you know, obviously we wanted to create a narrative of, of what Justice Ginsburg life, just Justice Ginsburg's life has been all about. But so much of her life is intertwined with her work um, as an advocate, as a Supreme Court justice. And so we wanted to make sure that the law was not lost in what we were trying to do. So we, we really wanted to bring, um, you know, what might, some might think of as boring sort of legal intricacies of and the legal strategy that she formulated. Um, we wanted to make sure that that was able to be, you know, brought to a larger audience and that people could access it at different levels. I'd love to talk to all three of you about uh, what these two characters encountered in, their, uh, encountered in their life that brought them to the kind of Supreme Court justice uh, they, they turned out to be. So let me start with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What did she experience in her own life that shaped her views and the kind of uh, high court justice that she would become? Um, so... This is something that I think a story that has not been told enough uh, about her own life and how that informed the litigation that she brought as the head of the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, which is to say that when she brought the case of an Air Force woman who was told she had to choose between her pregnancy and her job, that she had to be forced to have an abortion uh, in 1970, before it was legal throughout the United States, the military could tell you you had to get an abortion or quit your job. That when she was passionately bringing that case and thinking that it would lay the groundwork for reproductive freedom, she herself was somebody who had been demoted and then fired from her job for becoming pregnant. And she was someone who, when she got pregnant the second time, wore baggy clothing to hide it because she feared again that she would lose her academic appointment. Um, and when she was bringing cases uh, that argued for the rights of men to be caregivers and to, uh, to be free from stereotype would be the phrase that she would use, she herself in her own life uh, experienced a way before its time equal marriage uh, in which each of them had both intellectual and personal and parental uh, contributions. Mm. And when she was arguing that women should uh, be considered equal citizens under the law, she was doing so as a person who had, uh, as one of only nine women in her Harvard Law School class, uh, been brought to this dinner that she was so excited to come to this dinner, sitting with the dean of the law school, uh, all of the women being welcomed and being paired with these uh, professors and sitting next to a professor that she said looked like a god to her. And uh, they have a question for her. The dean has a question for her, and she's so looking forward to uh, being finally taken seriously as a student and as an intellectual. And the question this man, Dean Erwin Griswold, has for her is, and all the women of the class, how do you justify taking the place of a man? Wow. So 
the personal is political. It's a cliche, but it very much informed her passion and her intellectual pursuits. Mm. So, Will, same, same question to you. Marshall was an attorney with the NAACP. His views were shaped in large part in the crucible of the civil rights struggle. Can you say something about all of this, his background and the forces that, that shaped the judge that he became? Mm-hmm. Marshall had uh, two dear friends, Harry and Harriet Moore, in a little small town in Florida, and uh, she was a school teacher, Harriet Moore. Uh, they were husband and wife, uh, and uh, Harry Moore, uh, he traveled throughout the state of Florida registering blacks to vote in the late 1940s uh, throughout 1950, and um, they would get inspiring letters from Thurgood Marshall, who was head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Hey, you're doing great work. I'll be in town next week. Want to visit you and and Harry and Harriet Moore would say, well, you must stay at our house. You know, we have a guest bedroom. And so Marshall uh, visited them on several occasions between 1947 and 1951. Uh, On Christmas Eve, 1951, Harry and Harriet Moore went to a a Christmas Eve dinner about 30 miles away. <clears throat> While they were away, three Ku Klux Klansmen slipped underneath their house, which was up on stilts, and laid dynamite. Mm. Uh, Harry and Harriet Moore arrived back home at uh, 11 o'clock at night, finished wrapping their gifts, and went to bed. The house exploded at 2.30 in the morning. Um, Harry Moore died instantly. Harriet Moore, his wife, was rushed to the hospital, all-Negro hospital, which was further than the all-white hospital. And so her injuries got worse as the journey got longer. Um, her, their daughter was on the train coming from Washington, D.C. for Christmas Day, when she gets off the train on Christmas Day, she looks around the tra- train station and doesn't see mom and dad and asks her uncle, where's mom and dad? And the uncle says, your dad has been murdered and your mother is at the hospital and uh, she's in serious condition. So Evangeline Moore, who I interviewed for this book, rushes to the hospital and the doctors tell her, if your mother can make it, to seven days, then we believe uh, she'll survive. She died on the sixth day. Um, the good marshal immediately rushes to Florida to investigate, uh, and he's, he's there for four days, and he's outraged. Uh, this is a house that he has slept in, and there's a picture in the book of the house uh, being blown up. Um, um, uh, and Marshall <clears throat> was threatened with death immediately uh, as soon as he landed and um, there was no federal civil rights law so there was no law to keep him safe so he was he was always flying by seat of his pants and his wits in these southern towns Uh, but Marshall had a sort of a secret weapon as odd as this is uh, he had befriended of all people J. Edgar Hoover (laughs) and um, Hoover there was a class of people 
uh, who, who were loathed, disliked more than blacks. And uh, that was the KKK. So Thurgood Marshall going into a southern town, he would find out which mayor is a member of the KKK, which city councilman, which school teachers, and he would report back to J. Edgar Hoover. And Hoover would say, Thurgood Marshall, that's my man. <laughs> he told me about some of these rascals down there in Selma, Alabama, and I'm going to take them down. And so Hoover sort of wanted to keep Marshall safe. So Marshall is in this little town yeah. in Titusville, Florida. It's time to go because he's got everything he can, his report about the bombing. And um, he comes out of the motel, the segregated motel. There's a friend ready to drive Thurgood Marshall to the airport. He couldn't call ahead because the ticket agent might know that it's Thurgood Marshall and would be able to make another phone call uh, to some hooligans and say, hey, Thurgood Marshall is coming on Route 1 at 6 o'clock this evening out here to the airport, and then you can take him out that way. And so um, Marshall comes down from the hotel, gets in the car, and two burly men start walking toward him, white men. And one of them says, roll down the window. And Marshall is tense and afraid and just knows that something bad is about to happen. And the man leans down and says, Mr. Marshall, I'm FBI. I was sent here by Mr. Hoover, and we're going to get you out of this town safe. Wow. That's my movie moment right there. <laughs> I mean, I can see it. That's my movie moment. I, shoot, I can see that. You know, and one car gets in front of Marshall, and another car gets in the back, and they escort Marshall to the, to the airport, and both of these agents walk up, to the, to the ticket agent who, who looks at Marshall, black man, and says, uh, all the flights out of here are full. There's no, there's no seats for him, oh, and boy. points at Thurgood Marshall. And the FBI agent says, ma'am, if this man is not on the next plane out of here, we will shut this airport down. And that's how Thurgood Marshall got home safely that night. That's amazing. So you hear a story like that, and then you, you, you think about this first debate in the Senate hearing around originalism and Thurgood Marshall arguing that the, the Constitution is a living document. Um, it just brings, I came across this line, and now forgive me, I'm not sure if I read this in your book or just some other research that I was doing for this interview, but I came across this line from Marshall, you do what you think is right and let the law catch up, which I just think says so much about... The, who he is and, and uh, how he thought about the law. Yes. You know, one of the senators, it, it was Sam Irvin, who said uh, after the uh, Miranda ruling uh, in 1966, I think that's you're right. a lawyer, you're right. Yeah. I should know. You would know, you would know, yeah. I think that's right. 1966, so it was very fresh when Marshall... I'm going with a lawyer, by the way. Yeah, just, just me too, me too. <laughs> It was very fresh when Marshall, Marshall's hearing started. And so Sam Irvin said, I don't like that decision. I don't like the Miranda ruling. What's the matter with just a voluntary confession, Mr. Marshall? And Thurgood Marshall said, well, 
I've got a problem with that because many of my clients, after four days of being beat over the head in the local jail, will utter a voluntary confession. Hmm. And so, you know, Marshall had seen the ravages of racism, the ravages of being locked away for crimes that you didn't do. He brought real life, real world experience to the Supreme Court hearings, into the Supreme Court itself. Yeah. You know, um, Irene and Sean, I was struck by an intersection of these two stories. Uh, I mean, you start your book, and you just made reference to this, actually, with, with the description of Ruth Bader Ginsburg descent to, to Shelby County v. Holder, right? This is the 2013 decision that dismantles a big portion of the Voting Rights Act and, and which she read from the bench her dissent. Tell us about that particular moment, because you, that shows up early in your book, and it makes quite an impression on you. Who wants to take that on? You could take it. Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we found out uh, while researching the book is that Justice Ginsburg wears different collars. That's right. For for different purposes. So she has a dissenting opinion collar, and um, <laughs> it's woe betide when you see that. That's probably bad news for liberals. Exactly. Exactly. So we found out that she indeed was wearing that uh, sparkling dissenting collar. Uh, the day that she announced that decision. Um, and, about, you know, at that point, we sort of thought of her as this great dissenter. She, she, she wrote these dissents this week, and, and uh, as Erin mentioned earlier, she had sort of started this reputation for herself uh, mostly when she was the only woman on the court mm. uh, after Sandra Day O'Connor had uh, left. And, but the fact of the matter is, for most of her career, she was not known as a firebrand. She was very much a moderate, which is what, you know, President Clinton, his concern was when he first appointed her. So I think that this sort of encapsulates a a large theme of, of, of the book in the sense that you know, she was sort of forced into being this dissenter. And, 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 and in a lot of ways throughout her life, she was forced into making these arguments into to, to fighting these fights just to be able to use her God-given talents and to be able to do the things that she, re- you know, that she knew that she should have the right to do and that everyone should have the right to do. Um, so, you know, she was really had, had these sort of radical ideas about equality and specifically gender equality, um, but her persona was sort of conventional in a lot of ways. She had, you know, a, a husband and kids, um, and she was this sort of mild-mannered woman. Um, we, we think of her as a sort of stealth radical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of her friends who we interviewed for the book said that had she not had this tidy, conventional persona, uh, she had the ability to blend in more clearly than Thurgood Marshall did, even if she stuck out as a woman. She was... Uh, had she not had this conventional persona, very tidy, very ladylike, traditionally feminine, everybody would have thought that she was a total radical. I think a lot of her ideas still have so much relevance for today because, precisely because the problems she identified are still with us. Women are still being discriminated against on the basis of their pregnancy. The state is still interfering with a woman's right to decide whether to continue her pregnancy, yes or no. Um, 
men are still, we're still debating over the role of masculinity and whether marriage can be truly equal. Uh, so I, I think a way in which I would contrast her from Thurgood Marshall, oh, and by the way, something, it, she's very, I would call her aggressively humble. Hmm. Something that she always said when she was compared to Thurgood Marshall is, my life was never in danger. Hmm. One of the ways she's gotten to the point that she is at, despite having very strong and potentially radical and upsetting ideas, uh, is by being very deliberate and very strategic and by working well with others. You know, uh, giving credit to people is something that not a lot of people in public life are capable of. And it sounds kind of boring. She talks so much about collegiality. Like in the beginning when we were working on the book, we are like, God, this stuff about collegiality is so boring. Like everyone knows, everyone at the Supreme Court has got to hate each other. Why is she always talking about how they all have such a lovely relationship? Like surely you want to punch Alito in the face sometimes. Um, but, but, but this is a, t I, I believe she uses collegiality as a tool. I believe that she is playing a long game and is very strategic such that if you see her up there dissenting, you know, she's already tried everything and that she believes a way in which I would contrast her to go back to what I was saying. Uh, uh, she believes that the most lasting change is incremental. And she, she has argued that she was inspired by Thurgood Marshall's strategy, which is more incremental than people uh, believe. And because there has been such a backlash to women's rights and to racial justice, uh, she believes that the proper course is to play an inside game and have social change and activists out in the street, but that the role of the law is to move very slowly towards justice, and that's the only way that you're going to have something that lasts. Now, not everybody agrees with that, but I, I say that also to, to say just how deeply shocking it is to have Justice Ginsburg, the way that she's depicted as this kind of avenging angel, this badass is the word you hear a lot, uh, and this dissenter, just reading your opinion from the bench is something, your dissenting opinion from the bench is something that is considered shocking in the Supreme Court context. And so for her to do this multiple times in a week or in a term, that's when you know she's tried everything and she wants us to listen. Interesting. Will, do we, I know that um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 25 years younger than Thurgood, Thurgood Marshall, did they cross paths? Would they have known each other at, at any point? Not that I've, uh, mm. you know, seen, you know, heard of each other, yeah. you know, certainly, but. She argued before him. Oh, she argued. She argued before him, yeah. And he always voted for her side. Yeah. So, smart man. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, there are there are several of the cases that she brought to the Supreme Court. Only one of which she lost, uh, in which Brennan, Justice William Brennan, and, and Justice Thurgood Marshall were the only ones who wholly accepted her opinion. So he was certainly an ally to her cause. Um, we're going to have some. Uh, I, I've got more stuff to ask these folks, but I, I want to give what time we have left over to you all. So uh, if you want to make your way to, the, the, to these microphones, right, there's one in the front and one toward the back. Please feel free if you want to um, ask questions. And uh, looks like we've got someone already. Yes, sir. Uh, I'd like to ask the RBG crowd if they are familiar with Martin Ginsburg's cookbook. 
Oh yes. Yeah. We in fact, we have a. Uh, we have... maybe tell tell the crowd about that because sure. it's a great yeah. book so, and it's got lots uh, of anecdotes in it. <laughs> we yes. love that cookbook, Chef Supreme. Highly recommend it. Yeah. It's like a B side to our book. Right. <laughs> we actually republished one of the recipes from that cookbook in the book, um, in the, our book. Um, and yeah, Martin Ginsburg was an amazing chef. Just Justice Ginsburg, um, before she was a justice, they used to split the cooking, um, but. Uh, Jane Ginsburg's uh, Jane Ginsburg, Ruth's daughter, uh, eventually said, "Why don't you let Daddy do the cooking?" <laughs> In 1980 was the last time that she cooked a meal, and he was a, he was a fabulous chef. And um, the wives they were all wives at that point, of the um, other Supreme Court justices uh, came together and made that cookbook uh, when Martin Ginsburg died in 2010. It, they called him Chef Supreme. That's the name of the book. <laughs> and, and, and it's one of the things that Justice Ginsburg talks about where she talks about, the, she always said, in my marriage, I didn't get second-class treatment. Um, and um, unfortunately, Martin Ginsburg passed away in 2010. Right. Uh, Justice Ginsburg has never missed a day on the bench. So, in fact, the day after her husband passed away, um, she was there on the bench to read an opinion, and no one expected to see her there. Uh, they were t they were announcing uh, that Justice Chief Justice Roberts talked about uh, Marty Ginsburg and how much he had meant to everyone on the Supreme Court, and Scalia was crying. Uh, and Justice Ginsburg just sat there very quietly, and we later spoke to her kids about this, and they said Dad would not have wanted her to miss a day on the bench. Hmm. Well, hey, good. I'd love to um, come back to you because, and I wasn't planning to ask you this because I just heard it just as we were standing over there before we came up on the stage, but you told a great story about how you came up with the title of this book. That at one point you were going to call it confirmation, right? Yes. Right. And which sounds like a perfectly reasonable title. Yeah. <laughs> and I liked it, and it had settled inside my psyche and my mind for about uh, four years. I spent five years on the book, so at about four years and three months in, I get a call from my editor, and he says, "Hey." The title is really not working for me anymore. And, you know, of course, I'm upset. Like, what do you mean the title is not working? I mean, you know, this is my title. It's a confirmation. You know, it really takes you out of your comfort zone. You know, you're, somebody throws a curveball at you that late. And he says, well, well, you know, just think about something else with a little more oomph, a little more juice. And so I live in Washington, and I went through a walk, uh, for a walk across a park, and I said to myself, gee, I have to, I have to show my editor uh, something about this epic showdown, you know, because the hearings lasted five days, and every day it was a showdown between Thurgood Marshall and these southern senators. There were some northern heroes, of course, on the— Senate Committee, Birch by uh, uh, Joe Tidings, um, uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, Everett Dirksen, uh, you know, but it was, it was just a showdown. And so I got back home and I said, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Showdown. 
showdown. Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America. So I called my editor and I said, hey, I think I got a new title. And he said, okay, what is it? And I said, showdown. Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America. And Peter, my editor said, um, I like it too much, which means I need a day to sleep on it. <laughs> and so he called me back the next morning and he said, showdown it is. And so when I was getting ready to go on my book tour, uh, my my 23-year-old niece said, hey, Uncle Will, it's showtime for showdown. <laughs> well, I said, you're right about that. Erin um, and Sean, oh, question here. Yes, oh, I have a question for you. Um, if you. For Will Haygood, yeah. Yes, for Will Haygood. Um, who do you picture as playing Thurgood Marshall if they were to make a movie? You just talked about the movie scene, so who would you play? And will Lee Daniels direct it again? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so the question is, who does he who does he picture playing Thurgood Marshall in uh, in an eventual yeah, TV series TV or movie or movie? Yeah. Um, I <coughs> I liked uh, Forrest Whitaker, you know, and I know him, so he played the butler. Maybe I can call in a chip. <laughs> uh, I think he might go for that. Yeah, you know. <laughs> what a character. And um, uh, Terrence Howard, you know, oh. I think could, cop, could quite possibly bring it off. Um, you know, it's a lot of great actors out there, you know. Uh, but, but what fascinates me, you know, these Southern senators, oh. uh, because two, listen to this, two of the Southern senators... James Eastland and Strom Thurmond had fathers who murdered men. And, mm. um, uh, hey, gee whiz, those are my neighbors. Area. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, I haven't seen them in years. How y'all doing? Thanks for being here. Stand up. I mean, those are All my right. neighbors. Will Haywood's neighbors, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> they are great. Um, uh, I'm glad y'all are here. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, like uh, Sam Irvin, Ned Beatty, uh, John McClellan, James Woods. Oh, I mean, there's some great roles, you know, for some of these Southern segregationists. I think Tommy Lee Jones, you could fit him in. Oh, yes. Yes. I would think. There's, Gene Hackman, I'd like to bring him out of retirement. That's a good idea. Gene Hackman. There's actually going to be a, a movie about Justice Ginsburg as well, um, and it's Natalie Portman is going to play her. Wow. And um, it's at, the screenplay was written by Justice Ginsburg's nephew. Who is, and, who, who is it? What's his name? I forget. It's, it's her husband's nephew. The name escapes me right now. But um, okay. she actually, Natalie Portman, went to Chambers to meet with Justice Ginsburg. Um, and, uh, and actually, when I spoke to Justice Ginsburg about this, the thing that she was most impressed by was that Natalie Portman had worked really hard to become a ballerina for Black Swan. Um, I think work ethic, above all, is something that she values. But Nat she was also impressed by the fact that Natalie Portman had insisted that the film have a female director. Hmm. So 
look for that coming soon. I don't think it's begun shooting yet, but uh, that's in the pipeline. Correct. Yes, ma'am, please. Thank you. Um, I'm a big fan of the Tumblr. I am also a hashtag millennial, so <laughs> it gave me a great platform. I see you've seen the book. <laughs> yes, I Yay. actually just bought it. So. All right. Um, and I just want to ask, you spoke a lot about how Justice Ginsburg um, does like the long haul to accomplish what she accomplishes. And I just, I'm interested in how you think that idea and like how she does what she does versus how millennials accomplish things in different ways. Um, how like every kind of social movement of the past couple years has become a hashtag, which has a short lifespan. Um, and if that kind of like is helping us or hurting us. And if the way we have such a saturation of media through social media and different platforms, if that will um, make people more discouraged or more encouraged to be involved and follow in the footsteps of Justice Ginsburg. Well, I think that, um, I think that she, you know, is not against the idea of, I, I think one of the things that the sort of like hashtag generation, you know, as much as we can disparage it, I'm also a millennial. Um, but I think the the one good side of it, if you want to look at it this way, is that, you know, more people are engaged in these conversations and there is so much because there's, there are so many conversations happening at once, it can be overwhelming. Um, and I think that's where it becomes important to channel your, you know, your frustration, which there, of which there is a lot on the internet, um, and to channel it into to working towards a goal. And I think that that's what Justice Ginsburg, uh, Justice Ginsburg's take would be on on sort of millennial activism. But I think she would be happy with the idea that more people are being more people are engaged in, in social movements in general. And I think, you know, that, that ties into what we were talking about earlier with this notion that, you know, the Supreme Court can only decide the cases in front of it. And it, it has to, you know, it's, the law is about precedent. So in terms of where the country is moving, that's up to us, right? And she always talks about how the necessary preconditions for the law to change is for there to be a social movement and to, and to rise up. And that is something that, you're right, it does take sustained effort. I, I feel really encouraged by how many people have been engaged in the issues that she's brought up. You know, this term in the Supreme Court, we are likely to have cases on... We know we're already we're going to have affirmative action, which is something that she's written very fervently in support of uh, from the bench. It is very likely that in the next few weeks, we'll find out that there are cases, uh, that they're going to take up cases involving abortion and contraception, two different cases. So in terms of the issues that Justice Ginsburg has devoted her life to, it couldn't be more urgent. And I think, you know, you're right. By the time it gets to the Supreme Court, it's almost too late. And ironically, for somebody who is the Supreme Court justice and devoted her life to the law, she thinks that the real tool has to be sustained social movement and cultural change. So I think what we're really hoping is that the excitement and the fun of the memes draw people into these conversations, uh, that we can learn from her example. We were so impressed and blown away by how the feminism that she had in the 70s was so ahead of its time, was so, to use a word that we should use a lot now, intersectional. Um, so I have a lot, I'm, I'm like borderline millennial, I have a lot of hope for our generation uh, that this excitement is not just going to fizzle out, um, because she's not the likeliest heroine 
I mean, neither is Bernie Sanders, by the way, not the likeliest hero. Um, so let's give ourselves some credit uh, and, and use this as a departure, as a starting point to go more deeply into these conversations about the issues that deeply affect our country. All right, well, what a great note to end this great conversation on. Um, Erin Car Carmon and Shauna uh, Kanishnik, thank you so much. Thank That's you. That's really great. And Will Haygood. And Will and uh, Will Haygood, thank you as well. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.